let's turn to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. And we're going to read from verse 4 to the end of the chapter, verse 13. Verse 4. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half time. And as soon as they finished shattering the power of the holy people, all these events would be completed. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the time of the end. Many will be purged and purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, as we um, turn our attention now to the scriptures of truth and to a portion of scripture, Lord, that's not often read, we pray, Father, that you would cause us to be struck by the fact that this is your holy word, that this is speaking something very profound for us to understand. I pray that you would challenge us in our minds, and I pray, Lord, that you would instruct us and teach us and help us to grasp what it is that we need to see in this text. Help us to see you more clearly, Lord. Give us a greater understanding of who you are this morning, that we would leave here with an increased perspective, and with that perspective, Lord, with, with praise in our hearts towards you. Lord, if what we believe doesn't transfer into praise, then... It's really not um, truly getting through. Help us, we pray, God, and glorify your name this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, we're not only finishing the final vision of Daniel, but we're finishing our series in Daniel. This will be the last sermon in our series in Daniel. And I subtitled this series, The Sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Sovereignty means God's absolute supreme rule over all things. That he is the supreme ruler. That no one rules God, but God rules over all. That no one thwarts God's will, but God's will thwarts everybody else's will. He is sovereign. He is above all. That's the 
clear and major theme of the book of Daniel. This is a truth, God's sovereignty, that confronts us page after page after page in the book of Daniel. And of course, outside the book of Daniel, but we're just looking at Daniel right now. A truth that confronts us page after page, repeatedly slamming like a hammer upon the rusty nail of our intellect, aiming to drive it into the proper place. This is what Daniel is, is seeking to accomplish in our minds, to, sh- to get our mind into the right place, our thick heads. How many of you know you have a, a rusty intellect, right? And you have to hear it again and again and again. God is in control. God is sovereign over the big things in life and over the little things in life. God is sovereign over the beginning, the middle, and the end. God is sovereign and in control of the good things and of the bad things. God has a plan for this world and for your life. God has a purpose, and no one can thwart his hand. True or false? It's a hard thing to say true to, isn't it, sometimes? You see, in fact, this idea of God's sovereignty isn't even pleasant for a lot of people. It's not even good news for a lot of people. It's very uncomfortable. For those who are enjoying the illusion of their self-sovereignty, the idea of the sovereignty of God is not a comfortable idea at all. For those who are enjoying the illusion of self-sovereignty, I mean, we all like to think we're in control of our lives, right? How many of you like to think you're in control of your life? I, I know that I do. And it, it is kind of uncomfortable to know that I'm not in control. I can plan. I can determine. I can figure everything that I'm going to do, figure it all out. I can execute, and it can come to nothing if God doesn't will it. Amen? See, we like to think that, no, what happens to me today is what I say is going to happen to me today. Whether it be my leisure, whether it be my job, whether it be anything. But it's all in the hand of God. Therefore, whatever happens, we acknowledge it's from Him. The good things, we give Him thanks. Even the bad things, Job said, we give Him praise. Blessed be the name of the Lord, because... Shall we receive only good from the Lord and not also evil? Will we be people who honor God and acknowledge God and give God thanks only because God gives us good? Don't we also deserve ill from God in this fallen world that we live in? See, it's, it's, we like to be in control and we often think that we can handle it. So those who don't like the sovereignty of God are those who think that they can handle being in control. It doesn't bother them. The idea that God is in control doesn't bother them. They think, oh, it's good that he's not in control and that I'm in control because then everything will be okay. And it scares them that he's in control because they think that he's a bad God. You see? If you think that you're really good and you're really capable and you're, I can take it from here, God, I don't want you in control, and you think that God is a mean God or a cruel God or a bad God, then you wouldn't want him to be in control. You think he might play tricks on you or something, right? The fascinating thing to me that I'm repeatedly fascinated by is that there's such opposites here, even in the Christian church, that the idea of God being in control of all things, for many, even Christians, is a very uncomfortable idea, and yet for other Christians, it's a source of incredible comfort and strength. It's fascinating, this opposite. For those who realize that they aren't capable, the idea that God is is in control is very comfortable. As a matter of fact, I'm, I personally am so glad that God has 
written all of my days in a book. That whatever's going to happen to me today, even if bad things come my way and a robber mugs me or I get in a car accident, I'm glad that God is in control of my life and it's not just all up to me and up to other people. And when you realize that God is a good God, when you realize the character of God as he's revealed himself through history and especially through Jesus Christ, then it's a lot easier to say, God, I'm okay with you being at the wheel of what happens in my life and in this world. And then you also, it's good to acknowledge that God has the right to be sovereign. Not only is he good and you're happy he's in charge, not only are you realizing that it would be a scary world if only human beings were in control of what happened on earth, but you also acknowledge that as God the creator, he has the right to be in charge, and we honor that right, and we praise him for his rule. And what happens when when you make this shift, brothers and sisters, from uh, not liking God's sovereignty to resting in God's sovereignty, there's an exchange that takes place from a shallow optimism in man to a profound optimism in God. By shallow optimism in man, I mean people are tend to be optimistic about what man can do. And they usually look at Christians and say, you guys are so pessimistic about what man can do. I would never want to live in a world of Christianity because you're always saying man is sinful, man is bad, man can't do any good, man can't accomplish things. And you're so pessimistic. You're, you depress me. I hear that a lot when I go on campus and share with people that they're sinners. They say, why are you depressing me? Are you trying to take away my eternal hope and my peace and my joy? And I say, yeah, if that peace and hope and joy is is based upon you, yes, I'm trying to take that away. That's a shallow optimism. That's not a, that's not a substantial optimism. That's, a, that's an illusion. And the circumstances of life will show that that's an illusion. All other ground is sinking sand. But we replace a shallow optimism, not with a, a pessimism, an ultimate pessimism, but with a profound optimism in God. Because now we trust in what God can do. He can order our steps. He can make things right. He can give us righteousness. He can give us peace. He can give us joy. He can give us hope. And we have it in God. What a wonderful exchange. One of the best examples of this change comes from a fascinating book called Indelible Ink. I don't know if you've heard of that book before. Indelible Ink was written by a guy named Scott Larson. And what he does in this book is he interviews 22 major Christian leaders and he's asking these leaders what books had a profound influence upon their lives. As books often do have a profound influence on our lives. So this book, Indelible Ink, his goal was to make accessible to the public what books have had a profound influence upon Christian leaders. The very first chapter, he interviews a fascinating woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. How many of you have ever heard of Johnny Erickson Tata? If you haven't heard of her, I strongly encourage you after this morning to go learn about her, look her up. I'll just give you the brief. Johnny is a Christian. She was, I think, raised in a Christian family. Vivacious young woman, loved hiking, loved horsebacking. One of those young women that's just very uh, confident and excited about life. You know, and has a, you can tell she has a very bright future in this, in, in the world, according to man's purview. That's it. 
She's now, I think, in her 60s, and she's been a quadriplegic her entire life. She wrote a book, an autobiography. The thing that she says was that when she... question that comes to our mind. Why did God allow this to happen? We, we, we seem to intrinsically know that God is in control. And we can deny it and say, no, no, it's all human choices, what happened. But then you hit your head like that, and you think, God, what, why did you put me through this? Right? People in suffering know that question. Cannot begin to express the relief and release I felt as I plunged, no pun intended, deeper into this marvelous truth that my diving accident was really no accident at all. Isn't that amazing? I cannot begin to exist, died for us. And now she's learning God is in control of all things. And since I know he's in control and I know that he loves me, I can trust. And you can just feel the tension that was released from her when she realized that God, the loving God, was in control of what happened. In fact, Johnny said that the alternative perspective, that God wasn't in control of that, that that was just a freak accident that God was himself observing and saying, oh no, you know, that Johnny was the ultimate one that was guiding her own steps. She says the alternative was absolutely intolerable. She could not live in a world where God was, in, was absent like that, or just watching. Peace doesn't come from knowing that God didn't have a part to play in it. Peace comes from understanding the character of God, who is in control. You know, God hates the death of the wicked. God hates seeing people suffer. But God is in control. And God allows what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. I think that's an absolutely true statement. But don't be fooled by the word allow. Here's what Johnny says about that. Whether hardship is brought on by our own negligence or through the direct assault of the hand of a wicked person or through our own ignorance and misinformed decisions or our lack of awareness or misdoings or some catastrophe of nature, these things all fall under the purview of God's overarching decree. She basically summed all the options up. And she says they all fall into God's plan. A close look at the New Testament, and I would add the Old, shows that God's sovereignty extends over my spinal cord injury or my cancer, but in his sovereign decree, he has allowed them. He does not approve of them, but he has allowed them. And I don't care if you use the word permit, allow, or ordained. It's all the same thing. Ultimately, it goes back to God being in charge. If you say allow or permit, if you allow for the fact that God can intervene and stop and interfere and save, then you have to acknowledge that God is ultimately in control of whatever happens on planet Earth and in heaven. And it's his will. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 9, who can resist his will? I'm not sure where everyone is on that here this morning, what you all feel about the sovereign point of the books to be an encouragement and a comfort and a balm for our anxious souls in the midst of all the things that happen in life. And I hope as we've been going through Daniel and looking at God's sovereignty over Israel and over Nebuchadnezzar and over the things that happen. You, Daniel, can seal these words and seal up the book until the time of the end. And there's some ambiguity about what that means exactly. 
because the concept of sealing in the Bible can mean a whole bunch of different translators felt that there's the element of secrecy here. But the word doesn't necessarily have to mean conceal at all. Hide it so people can't understand, or preserve it so it lasts so people can understand. As I was reading the, the commentators, I found that most commentators, and this was seemed the best interpretation to me, was that what Daniel was being told to do was to preserve the book and to seal it for protection. He was not being commanded by the angel, make it obscure, hide it. First of all, that just didn't happen in history. People have been reading Daniel for a very long time. And while I agree that there are a lot of things in the book that are kind of obscure, and that does come through here in the chapter, the, the sense is better that Daniel is meant to preserve the book un, so that it lasts until the latter days. It's kind of an interesting statement about how God preserves his word. He uses humans to do it, right? But he's the one who's ensuring that it will last and that it will be preserved. However, he does it. And look at verse 4. It describes the end times in verse 4 as follows. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. Now, there's two ways that people understand this passage, this, this phrase. Many will, go back, many will go back and forth or run back and forth, and knowledge will increase. One way, which is very interesting, is that They'll say, you know, this fascinatingly describes the modern age. That until recent times, most people in life didn't really travel much. So most people were born, and they were raised, and they died in one place. And if they traveled, it was extremely rare, and it wasn't very far. Because to travel a far distance, you have to go on horseback or boat, and that would be perilous. And so most people felt content to just stay home. It's interesting, I was, when I was in Scotland, I stayed at a, a wonderful old stone farmhouse that was taken care of by the Black family. The, the Black family lived in this farmhouse. And uh, Mr. Black was this huge, burly Scottish man, huge, chested, deep-voiced Scottish man. And in the morning, he'd come down and stoke this fire. And it was like almost in slow motion, this guy just... It was just fascinating. This house was so old. It was centuries and centuries old. And I asked him, I said, Mr. Black, how long have you lived here? It's a common question we ask Americans, right? How long have you lived in this house? And usually they say, oh, five years, 15 years, you know. And he goes in his Scottish accent, ah, he went like that. <laughs> ah, he goes, I was born in this house. And he goes, and my pappy was born in this house. And my grandpappy was born in this house. And I think, if my memory serves me correct, he even said his great-grandpappy was born in this house as well. <laughs> People stayed put. And you know, for many thousands and thousands of years, the way of travel was essentially the same, right? Horseback and ship. Um, it, nothing really changed since the ancient times of Israel to even the most modern times of, say, the American Revolution. It's only until uh, the most recent times that we've had cars and planes and and spaceships, and the ability to travel all over the place. And now, you know, any of us can just save up our money for a couple months and travel to Taiwan if we wanted to. It's no big deal, right? So some people point out and they say, look at the parallel. Many will travel to and fro. Like Lots of people will be going all over the earth, and that's kind of the feel here. And knowledge will increase. 
Well, you might say, well, of course knowledge is going to increase. As time goes on, people learn more things, and it's true. But who could have predicted the unbelievably shocking explosion, and that's probably the best word for it, of knowledge that has come in my own lifetime through uh, not only books and universities that have been, you know, the abundance of books that have come and universities that have started, but through none other than the internet, right? You can basically learn anything you want to know at the touch of a finger or in your pocket. You know, you can carry around a phone and your pocket's pulled out and know whatever you want to know. The sky's the limit, isn't it? So some people will say, look, this seems to describe the last days, and so perhaps we're living, we're living in the last days because this describes the last days and it's got an uncanny resemblance to our own time. Now, the other way of tri- interpreting this last phrase is by saying, no, 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 we shouldn't read into it all that. We should just realize that this is talking about a frantic search for knowledge. So they, they will point to other verses in the Bible, like Amos chapter 8, where it talks, uses the same expression, actually. Many will go to and fro looking for the word of the Lord, and they won't find it. So the sense of to and fro, we shouldn't, they say, read into it, lots of traveling, but just a frantic search for knowledge. People are frantic to understand. They're, they're going north, south, east, and west, everywhere, just to find out what is the truth. I personally don't think that we have to choose between those two options. Because I do believe both of them, that there is a frantic search for truth going on. People do travel the world over to find truth. People do travel all over the world to find peace, right? A lot of our traveling is because of the restlessness of our souls and we're looking for answers. A lot of our not look, we, we are searching for knowledge and we use the internet to do so. So we may not have to choose. Both ideas may be present. The commentator Renald Showers says this about verse 4, and I believe he's correct. Quote, Instead of running to and fro to psychics, so-called modern-day prophets and speculators, people should turn to the written scriptures to obtain knowledge about the future. They are the reliable, authoritative source of information on the subject of the future, but of all things. For their ultimate source is the sovereign God who has determined what will happen and who rules over the entire course of history, who knows the end from the beginning. You want to find answers to life's most difficult questions? You want to learn about the future? You don't have to travel to and fro to find it. You can turn to the scriptures that have been preserved for us as a perpetual lighthouse in a dark world by our God. Who do you turn for who do you turn to for answers? To man or to God? That is the ultimate question. And God has preserved his word for us that he may guide us in the steps of truth and peace. God has amazingly preserved his word. I'm reminded of an interesting parable or analogy of his preservation. And maybe you've heard this before, but there was a young boy who, walking through the village, came across a blacksmith's hut. And he looks into the hut and he sees this huge, muscular man. And he's got a piece of metal upon an anvil. And he is, with another hammer 
slamming upon that anvil with as much strength as he can possibly muster. And the boy, as he sees it, is he's even wincing. It's so almost painful to watch to see him slam against that anvil with his huge hammer. And the boy shouts out, aren't you going to break it? And the man looks up and says, this anvil is over 100 years old and it's worn out many hammers. And the word of God is like that. The word of God is like that anvil that has stood the test of time and the critics and the critics' hammers for thousands and thousands of years and it's worn out all the hammers that has been struck against it and it still remains because God keeps his word because his word is true. The more we understand the Bible, the more we will appreciate it and turn to it again and again. love this quote by Goethe. He said, The Bible grows more beautiful as we grow in our understanding of it. I think that's true for anyone who's got experience with that. May we treasure this precious treasure, the Scriptures. May we study it. May we love it. May we live by it. Not only the prophecies of Daniel that have been preserved by God, but all that guides us in this dark world. Number two. I want to talk about the timing of the tribulation that Daniel talks about here in this passage. Now, last week we talked about the great tribulation of chapter 12, verse 1. Read with me here. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. The great tribulation. According to Jesus, this time of distress starts with what's called the abomination of desolation. You can read about that in Daniel 11.31. When the abomination of desolation is set up, then following that will be a time of distress unlike any other Jesus taught us, although Jesus said that it would be a short time. Now, in verse 5, 6, and 7, we return to that scene that we saw in chapter 10, because these chapters are all connected, where Daniel is by the river and the angel appears to him. And so we return to that scene in chapter 5, or really we've never left it at all. And we see that two other angels appear on the banks of the river, and one of them asks the other, or the angel that Daniel saw, that brilliant, amazing angel that there's some uncertainty between commentators. Is it Christ or is it an angel? And they ask this angel in verse 6, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? The question is, how long will this great tribulation be? The word wonders is a common word in the Bible referring to God's astonishing acts, both in judgment and in salvation. So you can apply the word wonders to this great tribulation for it is an act of God's judgment. It is an astonishing act of God's judgment upon Israel. How long will it be? This is not a disinterested, dispassionate question. This is not an angel just reading his script, you know. Act 3, angel walks in. How long will it be till the end of these wonders? The angels long to look into these things, the Bible tells us. The angel is, is aware of the fact that God's name and character and reputation is wrapped up in all that's going on here on the earth and with Israel. And so the angel's glued to it, fixed, engaged, gripped by this story. And the angel says, How long will it be till the end of these wonders? And in verse 7, Nothing could be more solemn than what this amazing angel who's standing above the waters says. 
He raises his left hand and his right hand towards heaven. Both hands are raised. And he swears by him who lives forever that God has determined this time of tribulation to be what he calls a time, times, and a half time. You'll remember that phrase is found in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision, and in that vision, the angel tells Daniel that the holy people Israel will be given into the hand of a little horn or a despicable horn, the Antichrist, for that same amount of time, for a time, times, and a half time. That's how long the Antichrist will be putting out his fury upon Israel. It fascinates me that for something so solemn and climactic as this, many Christians are disinterested in this uh, in this event and in this phrase, a time, times, and a half time. For many Christians, that phrase, that time, doesn't really mean much to them. It certainly meant much to the Apostle John. In the book of Revelation, over five centuries later, John the Revelator receives his own set of visions, and it's fascinating that the revelations that John receives pick up this very theme, pick up this very phrase that Daniel receives in his visions. Except in the book of Revelation, we learn that the time, times and a half time, is actually a period of 1,260 days, or another way that it's put in the book of Revelation, 42 months. Now, if you do the math, 1,260 days and 42 months come out to the same thing. And that comes out to three and a half years. And what's interesting about three and a half years is that's seven years divided in two, right? So three and a half years plus three and a half years is seven years. And what's interesting about seven years is that refers to Daniel's 70 weeks. And the last week of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, that, that final seven years that Daniel uh, is told about. And in the midst of that last week, Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, I believe it is, or 27, in the middle of that week, which is the three and a half year mark, the abomination of, set is, of desolation is set up. And so all of these prophecies fit together nicely like a glove. This is the time of final indignation this is the time of God's final judgment upon Israel, but it's also the time of Israel's birthing into salvation through Jesus Christ. It's the way, it's what God is using to bring Israel to their knees, to bring Israel to the end of their power, verse 7 says at the end, to shatter their power, as we talked about last week, to show them that they have no hope to rely upon. They're not to have a shallow optimism in what they can do, but they're to trust only in the rock of their salvation, God. Charles Spurgeon said that, I have learned to kiss the wave that drives me against the rock of ages. I think it's a beautiful quote. I've learned to kiss the wave that drives me against the rock of ages. What he's referring to there is the hardships that God brings into my life that drives me to Him are actually blessed things to be thankful for and not things to just hate and fight against. Joyce Baldwin says that paradoxically, when Israel is enduring their greatest agony of trial and torture, they are to look expectant, expectantly for the promised intervention 
of God's deliverance. And the lesson here is that when we have run out of all of our strength, we can take heart. Just because you can't do anything doesn't mean that God can't do anything, right? Just because you don't have any strength left doesn't mean that God doesn't have any strength left. It comes back to that optimism in God, that when there's no hope in anything else, we find that there is still hope in the God, as Paul says, who raises the dead. The God who raises the dead. That's our faith as Christians. We don't believe in a God who can only work through what humans can do. But we believe in a God who can raise the dead and do what is impossible with man. That's what our salvation is all about, isn't it? It's impossible for you to be righteous, right, Keith, through what you do. But God can give you that. Look at verse 11 and verse 12 as we uh, consider another aspect of the timing of the tribulation. This, the, the, these two verses are puzzling verses that have eluded commentators of every stripe. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. So Daniel never does mention the 1,260 days, but he does mention another figure, which is unusual because it's 30 days after the 1,260 days. And then he says in verse, thir- in verse 12, how blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days, which is an additional 45 days after 1,290 days. Strange. And you pick up any commentary on Daniel, and they're all going to say this is strange. We don't really know what this is about. The best we can do is speculate, and I think that the best speculation is as follows that after Jesus returns, more things are going to happen. I mean, it's not like Jesus returns and everything's just over, right? And that this is actually referring to a period of time after Jesus has returned, and Jesus will be doing things when he arrives on the earth. Some people have suggested he'll cleanse the temple from the abomination of desolation, perhaps at the 1,290 days, perhaps after 30 days. Or some people will suggest maybe this is when he will judge Uh, As he said, he'll gather nations before him and he'll judge them. Perhaps this is what it's talking about. He could could be a whole bunch of things that he'd do. But Daniel says, you're blessed if you don't just make it to the coming of Christ, but how blessed are you if you make it past even this event that will take place after he comes. I don't know what exactly that event is. And that's also speculation. It could be wrong. Whatever it does mean, however, what we should learn from this passage is that God is sovereign and he has decreed the times and the seasons, even in specific details. That God isn't general when he prophesies. He doesn't just say, yeah, it'll happen in the future at some point. He even gives us several figures. I mean, who would write 1,290 and 1,335 unless it was specific and detailed? and it will be detailed and specific in its fulfillment. That's how precise God is, even in his control. There's a brief time of tribulation that God has decreed. The last point this morning from this passage I'd like to point out is the switching of Israel's covenant status before God. The switching of Israel's covenant status before God. And what I mean by that is that Israel's going to go from being unrighteous before God in their status to being righteous before God in their status. 
Because what is prophesied here in this vision, and not only in this final vision, but all through Daniel, is not the end of a nation, but the beginning of one. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 8 says, Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such a thing? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. You see, Daniel knows that Israel's covenant status before God is going to change. All the prophecies in Daniel have pointed towards that. Even though those prophecies have said a lot of bad things are coming toward Israel and coming down the line upon Israel, all of those prophecies end with good. So it's not just a, the whole book of Daniel isn't just despair, Israel, bad stuff's coming your way and it's going to be over for you. But yes, there's a time of judgment coming. Yes, it'll be the final indignation, but your latter end will be blessed. Of course, all of the prophecies leave us hanging. They really don't show us what is going to happen to make that change. They show us, yeah, the judgment's going to bring Israel to the shattering of their power. Israel's going to come to the end of themselves. But what is going to happen in order for Israel to become righteous? None of the prophecies actually say. But I believe this is what Daniel's question is all about in verse 8. Because he says, I heard but I couldn't understand. Meaning, the final indignation is going to last for only a short amount of time and when Israel's power is all gone. And Daniel knew that that meant that after that time there won't be any more indignation. Daniel knew that Israel has to be righteous and they will become righteous. But he didn't understand because the prophecy in verse 7 leaves us hanging. What's going to happen positively to make Israel righteous? And he wants to know how. My Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? Actually, it's not the best translation according to most Hebrew scholars. The, the verse 8 should best be translated, um, what will the last end be? What will be the last of these? And what is these? The wonders of verse 6. What will be the last wonder? Is his question. Okay, you're giving me all these wonders, all these astonishing things. And I know that they're bringing Israel to salvation, but what will be the last wonder that will bring about their righteousness? The question is not what is the result of all these things. He knows that. But what will be the last of the wonders that will bring about this wonderful result. Something has to happen for their status to change, for that covenant to no longer be broken, for the indignation to cease. What is it? Daniel isn't told, right? He's not permitted at this time to know how everlasting righteousness will be brought in for Israel. He knows that they needed it, but Daniel was not permitted to know about the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is clearly what's going to happen at the end of this tribulation time, as Jesus said, that immediately after the tribulation of those days, Jesus will return on the clouds of heaven. Daniel wasn't permitted to know the second coming of Christ. He wasn't permitted to know that Messiah's coming is going to be twofold. That Messiah is going to come once and die for the sins of the people and leave again and later come again to rescue them and to reveal to them God's great salvation. The answer we know as Christians is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is how righteousness is brought in for you, for me, and for this nation. 
Jesus died for our sins 2,000 years ago. But until a person realizes that, until a person has their eyes open to understand that, until a person puts their faith in Christ, that person remains unrighteous, even though Christ had died for their sins. And it's that revelation of Jesus, when they see him, as Jesus says that they would, when he said, you will not see me again until the day that you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the day that they proclaim him to be the Messiah, the one that they rejected. Until that time, in that moment, they won't be righteous. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 12. And we have here that amazing moment. And I don't think there's a place in the Bible that's more um, emotional and moving as this one. Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah says the same things that Daniel says, that there's going to be a period of final indignation upon Israel, but it will result in their salvation. Zechariah chapter 12, and look at verse 9. I'm going to be skipping a little bit just to get to the bird's eye view here, but in chapter 12, verse 9, this is a very famous passage. Many people have pointed to this. It's a really exciting moment when Israel turns from being unrighteous to righteous. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 9, In that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. Fascinating verse in the Old Testament about Israel piercing God. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be a great mourning in Jerusalem. And he lists all these other places and all these other families of Israel that will be mourning. Look at chapter 13, verse 2, or verse 1, excuse me. In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land, and they will no longer be remembered, and I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirits from the land. That is the false prophets and the unclean spirits from the land. That's never happened before in Israel. The day that they see Jesus is the day that they are cleansed from all of their iniquity. And all of their idols will never be found anymore. And look at chapter 14. There's no chapter breaks, but chapter 14, verse 2. Again, it's saying the same thing. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Who's in charge of what's going on? Who's in charge of the nations coming against Israel? God. Who's in charge of getting the nations out of there? God. It's part of his plan. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be captured. The houses will be plundered. The women will be ravished and the half of the city will be exiled. Why is this happening? It's God's indignation. It's judgment upon Israel for their sin, because they're unrighteous. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. There's hope. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. 
And look at verse 9. Oh, look, let me finish here. This is a wonderful verse, verse 4. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very, by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half towards the south. It never happened. And verse 9, the Lord will be king over what? All the earth. Now we know God is the ruler over all the earth, but this verse says he will be the king over all the earth. God is now the ruler over all the earth, but there's coming a day when he will physically be present here and be ruling over all the earth. Because there is another sense in which God isn't ruling over all the earth we can speak of. We can say that people rule over themselves and rebel against God. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name will be the only one. Can you imagine the only God that people invoke in that day will be the Lord our God? The only God people call upon on that day will be the, the name of Jehovah and of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? No more idols and false gods. What an amazing day that will be. When Israel, is, their status is switched from unrighteous to righteous. But of course, in order for there to be a switching of our status before God, brothers and sisters, there had to have been a switching of another's status before God. And do you know who I'm referring to? In order for us to change from being unrighteous to righteous, there had to be another one who had his status change. Otherwise, there would be no possibility for our status to change. It's because of another. It's because of a different switching. As the Bible teaches us that Jesus became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If the Lord Jesus, the sinless one who knew no sin, had not come to the earth and become sin for us, if he had not switched his status, if he had not taken the place of the sinner and taken the cup of wrath and judgment out of God's hands and he himself had not drunk it for us, then there would be no change of our status before God. There would be no change of our righteousness before God. It's only because of what He has done for us that we can stand before God and be blessed. And as Christians, we're forever indebted to the Lord Jesus. Amen? We come here, we proclaim that He is the one who saves us. We owe it all to Him. Not because of anything that we have done, but because in His love and in His mercy and in His grace for sinners, He Himself came and did that for us. That reveals his care for you. I just want to remind you this morning that God cares for sinners, that he cares for you, that he came into this world and did that horribly painful thing so that you could be saved and that your status could be switched. It is his blood that is the fountain of cleansing that Zechariah talks about that washes away our sins. And that's spiritually speaking, right? None of us have ever taken a blood bath in the blood of Jesus, right? Physically. We don't have in the closet in the back a vial with the blood of Jesus that will wash your sins away. But spiritually speaking, the blood of Jesus Christ is the fountain that washes our sins away because he bore our sins on the cross. It's a mysterious thing, isn't it? But God laid upon 
Jesus the sacrifice, your sins and my sins. He paid the price. He took the wrath. And all who believe are forgiven because the blood of Jesus Christ takes away those sins before God. Daniel tells us in Daniel 12 that many people will come to understanding. And we talked about that last week, that that understanding means they come to an understanding of righteousness through faith. They come to see that they're sinners and that they're hopeless and that they're helpless in themselves. And they come to realize that God is their rock and their salvation. Daniel also tells us in 12.10 that many will not understand, that the wicked will not understand. And the sad reality is, is that many people in this world will die in their sins and they will not be saved, because, not because there isn't a fountain that can cleanse them, but because they refuse to acknowledge their guilt and their helplessness and acknowledge their need for Christ and his salvation. The poet wrote, The man may think that all is well and every fear be calm. He lives, he dies, he wakes in hell, not only doomed, but damned. This is the fate of all those who refuse to heed the truth of the gospel and refuse to turn and reason with God and understand their sin and God's amazing salvation. They say, no, I'm in control, I'm capable, I can do this, you're not in control, you're actually a bad God, I'm better than you, I'm righteous, I can take it from you. They don't understand their need. Look how Daniel closes the book. Verse 13. Daniel is one of the righteous ones who understands that he's unrighteous and that righteousness is going to be provided by God. And he's trusting in it, even though he doesn't understand the second coming of Christ and how that works. Daniel is one of our number. He is told to go his way unto the end when he will rise from the dead and receive his portion at the end of the age. And again, that's referring to verse 2. When the Lord returns, when Jesus comes back, then the righteous will rise. and There will be an amazing reunion of the righteous, the family of God. What a wonderful way that the book ends. Those who know God now, can die with the same assurance that Daniel had. Imagine how wonderful that must have been for Daniel, hearing that from the angel and being able to, to die and truly rest in peace, right? Knowing that he's going to rise in the last day. And Jesus repeatedly said that, whoever believes in me, I will raise him up on the last day. This is an encouraging ending to the book for the righteous who are reading this, even for those who die before these times. Thus, Daniel... The book of Daniel ends on a note of blessed assurance. We just rest in God's word and promise and salvation. With that, I conclude the book of Daniel in our series. And I'd like to just say this in closing this morning. I would, I would encourage everyone to go back and to reread the book of Daniel on your own. So we've gone through this book for many months now. And you've heard a lot from me. But I would encourage you to, to not just neglect the book of Daniel now that we're done. Not just to say, okay, we've done Daniel. and I'm not done with Daniel. I'm not going to return to it for another five years. And believe me, that's possible. 
you can neglect a book for that long, right? I'm sure that there's books that some of you haven't read for five years, right? I would encourage you to, even now while it's all fresh in your mind, go back and read through the book of Daniel for yourself. And I'd like you to just point out four things that should guide your reading. First of all, notice the connections that are made between all the visions in the book of Daniel. As you're reading through the book, notice that none of the visions are, are standalone, but they all are connected. Look for the clues that connect them all. Understand he's talking about the same thing. The great scientist Isaac Newton said this about the book of Daniel. He was a lover of prophecy and of the book of Daniel. Isaac Newton said, The prophecies of Daniel are all of them related to one another, as if they were but several parts of one general prophecy, given at several times. The first is the easiest to be understood, and every following prophecy adds something new to the former. Brilliant mind. Notice the connection between all the visions. Number two, read the book of Daniel with the covenant in mind. Read the book of Daniel with that covenant framework. If you're not sure what that means, you've got to go back to the Torah. You've got to go back and read, read the Law of Moses, especially read Leviticus chapter 26, and understand Israel's relationship with God that they established at Mount Sinai, that covenant that if they obey, they'll be blessed, and if they don't obey, they'll be cursed. You actually have to read all the prophets in light of that covenant, that covenantal framework, because it's that covenant that gives us the why of the what. In Daniel, we're reading the what's going to happen, but the covenant will explain to us the why. If you're still not really clear on what the covenant is all about, just ask me or Brad or afterwards and we'll, we'll help you understand that. Thirdly, study history. Learn more about the ancient world and learn more about Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes and what happened in Rome and see if the history lines up with what Daniel prophesied of. See if uh, that interpretation that tries to put everything into the history is true or not. Really, to understand the book of Daniel, we have to also study history. And I think that's not just true for Daniel, that we as Christians need to be students of history. You can't read the Bible for very long to not realize that history is very important to God. And when you study history, I'd encourage you, go to the sources. Don't just go to a, a history book that's written in the modern times, as helpful as those are. Go to the sources. They're easy to find, and you can read about the accounts from men who lived in the ancient days. Lastly, to really understand the book of Daniel, you've got to be engaged by the beginning of the story, because in Daniel we're jumping right into the middle. So be engaged by the beginning, meaning be a student of the Old Testament. Go back to the beginning. Read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Read the history of the kings. Read the prophets. Be gripped by the beginning what God has done. And you'll find the book of Daniel a lot more exciting and gripping. And you'll find that you're much more interested to see what's going to happen in the earth when you realize what God has been up to since the beginning. May God grant us a greater sense that he is in control of all things. May we be a people of profound optimism in God. And may we, like Johnny, say that if God loved me enough to die for me, then trusting him with X, Y, and Z will be a cinch. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that is a light in a dark place. And I thank you, Lord, that you are in control of all things. 
and that life isn't all chaos. And Lord, I pray that you would teach us this lesson and help us not to have a shallow optimism. May we be people of great joy and peace and hope, Lord, as we think about what you have done and who you are and that you're in control. May we be a people of profound optimism, Lord. Lord, may it just shine on our faces that people may ask, why are you so hopeful? May we answer, because God, our God, is in control. Thank you for this time, Lord. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.